Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. Our text of scripture for today is uh, a story told in Luke's gospel. He is the only gospel writer to tell this story. It is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus at the end of the gospel in the 24th chapter. I invite you to listen for God's word as it comes to us from the gospel of Luke. Now on that same day, that day being that first Easter Sunday, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, so what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They still stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? And he asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. And moreover, some women of our group have astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find the body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. It's almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And that same hour they got up and they returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and the companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, he's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so, dear God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know about you if you're trying to get healthier these days, but a couple years ago my children gave me a Fitbit. 
Fitbit is one of those tracking devices that tracks your activity as you wear it on your wrist. It's intended to be an enticement for more active lifestyle, a little more activity in your day. It counts the number of steps that you take by the swinging of your arm. It uses GPS to actually track the distances that you walk or run. It even monitors your sleep patterns. And it provides you the opportunity on their website to log in your calories each day so you can monitor both your inputs and outputs. I've got to tell you, I've discovered if you go all the way with this thing, it's a full-time job. But to motivate you, Fitbit allows you to join groups of people or link with friends of yours who can hold you accountable so you can actually achieve your goals regarding fitness. You set a weight goal, for instance, and then you track your activity level and your caloric intake so you can accomplish your goals with your friends cheering you on. I've even heard today there are companies that are encouraging their employees to have Fitbits so that one department can compete against another department. It seems that when it comes to employee health plans, it's all about trying to prevent illness. Now, it must be said that there are competitors to Fitbit. Garmin is one of them. My son-in-law gave me his Fitbit when he bought himself a Garmin. And he said, it's interesting because Fitbit tends to use more of a carrot to entice you to activity. Garmin tends to use a stick. In, in, uh, he works for another German company, so he knows a little bit about this. Um, for instance, when you're on your way towards your goal and your Fitbit, you get messages like, you can do it. You're almost there. And when you've really accomplished your goal for the day, it's, you're an overachiever, way to go. Apparently, Garmin's messages are more the stick than the carrot. There's something like, don't be a quitter. <laughs> you haven't met your goals yet today. Get moving, what's wrong with you? But I've discovered if you're really want to, you can actually trick your Fitbit. You can just start there waving your arms. I, I could probably just, if I preached with more velocity, you know, I could get a lot more activity. And I've discovered if you're in a golf cart driving, it, the GPS function doesn't know what to do with that. So it gets confused and it records steps even as you're driving the golf cart. On one, one day on a motorcycle trip, I noticed I'd all actually stepped 40,000 steps. Uh, <laughs> but though not completely accurate, it does allow you to monitor your activity, your sleep patterns, even your resting heart rate. Because what you measure, you can change. Increase your activity level, decrease your consumption, it leads to weight loss, it leads to better health. Now, seven miles by anybody's standard is a good long day of activity and daily steps. But the two in our story this morning, after walking seven miles, 
walked back another seven miles and definitely would have received an overachiever status that day. Our story this morning is about two disciples who went out for a walk one Easter evening from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Seven miles, we're told. A walk that begins in sadness and despair. And it concludes with an unplanned additional seven-mile trek with complete joy and excitement. Luke's the only one that tells this story. These two disciples on the road to redemption. They experience a revelation on that road. Christ reveals a deeper understanding of life, a deeper understanding of truth than they had comprehended before. And it comes curiously through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. You know, this week we all kind of witnessed the solar eclipse. A nation turned its attention to what was happening in the heavens. And it was as if for these two walking the Emmaus Road, they were in the path of totality. During this eclipse that occurred of the crucifixion, it was utter darkness for them. But Easter and the living Christ brought light and an entirely new beginning with joy and excitement. Now on that same day, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, and while they were walking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Henry Nouwen writes about this text. The stranger from Nazareth had made everything new. He had made them into people for whom the world was no longer a burden but a challenge, no longer a field of snares but a place with endless opportunities. He had brought joy and peace to their daily experience, but now he's dead. All had come to nothing. They'd lost him, but not just him, but with him also themselves. They had become two lost human beings walking home without having a home. Henry Nouwen goes on to write about their discerning this presence. As the two travelers walked home mourning their loss, Jesus comes up and walks by their side, but their eyes are prevented from recognizing him. Suddenly, there are no longer just two, but three people walking, and everything becomes different. A stranger appearing from nowhere, yet one who somehow seems closer than anyone ever. The loss, the grief, the guilt, the fear, the glimpses of hope, the many unanswered questions that battle for attention in their restless minds, all of these were lifted up by this stranger and placed in the context of a much larger story than their own. What had seemed so confusing 
began to actually offer new horizons. What had seemed so oppressive began to feel liberating. And what had seemed so extremely sad began to take on the quality of joy. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know what has taken place, they asked. And of course, the irony is he's the only one in Jerusalem who does know what has taken place. What things, he asked. And he listened to them describe their experience. And then he turns to them and says, Oh, why are you so slow to grasp what the prophets and the scriptures have said for so long about me? And it wasn't until they were together in the breaking of bread that the guest that they invite becomes the host and their eyes are opened and they recognize him. And then they say to themselves, weren't our hearts burning while he was with us on the road? I love the story because it underscores the fact that we do not carry these burdens of life alone. But we don't always recognize when Jesus Christ is walking with us. But when he is, it makes a world of difference. We just might not recognize him at first. There's this kind of divine deference here, a holy waiting, a reluctance to invade, but an allowance for an invitation to come from us. When we extend that invitation to the holy presence, the guest becomes the host and our eyes are open, and the burden of life begins to become bearable. Our lives and our losses get framed differently. My friend often reminds me, joy is not the absence of sorrow, but the presence of God. We may be disheartened by life, but there's a much larger story unfolding where we begin to understand life is not meaningless, even if it's sometimes painful. And when we enter into this communion with our Lord Jesus in such a way, it ignites our hearts. It lifts our burdens. It sends us back into the lives that we're trying to escape with new energy and new life. Dr. James Loder was a professor of mine at Princeton Seminary, and he describes this kind of awakening in his own experience. It was in the midst of a tragedy that he and his family experienced. He and his family were on a vacation over the Labor Day weekend. They were headed to Canada, and they were driving a camper hooked to the trailer hitch of their car. And along the road outside of Kingston, New York, as they were headed north, they pulled off the highway and to help a woman who had a flat car and was standing there waving a white glove. 
She was middle-aged. Alarmed at the precariousness of her situation, Jim Loader pulled his car and trailer over in front of her own car. Just at the moment that he was leaning under the front of her car to find a place for the jack, a 64-year-old man fell asleep at the wheel on the freeway and plowed into the back of that Oldsmobile which ran over Jim Loader and trapped him against his own camper. There was just enough room for his head and his shoulders to rest near the place of impact. He writes, he never lost consciousness despite having his thumb ripped off and five broken ribs and a bleeding lung and skin scraped and gouged all over. His wife is barely five feet tall. She lifted that car off her husband. She simply said, in the name of Jesus Christ. And then she, losing consciousness herself, she lifted that car, broke a vertebrae in the process from which she recovered. And here's how Loder describes that experience. As I roused myself from under the car, a steady surge of life was rushing through me, carrying with it two solid assurances. First, I knew how deeply I felt love for those around me, especially my family. My two daughters sat crying on the embankment, and a deep love reached out of me toward them. And the second assurance was that this disaster had purpose. These were words with which I repeatedly tried to reassure my wife and children. Don't worry. This has purpose. Walking from the car to the embankment, I never felt more conscious of the life that poured through me, now more aware of this life and that it was not my own. My well-being came from beyond my natural strength, and I lay down on the grass mostly because I thought I ought to. And when my three-year-old daughter, Tammy, came to sit on my broken chest, I was able to comfort her with a story. And he went on to write, the adrenaline activated aggression towards the driver who had caused the collision, but the flow of life in me was both a stranger and a quieter force so that the thought of retaliation was subdued. By far the most significant and memorable effect was not the pain, not the anger, but the gracious nature of life I was experiencing. He experienced that life that never, ever dies. And he said, I knew then... I was going to live. It was either going to live here or I was going to live there, but I knew I was going to live. And in point of fact, Dr. Loder lived for another 30 years. And now he lives triumphantly on the other side with Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, the fact of the matter is you and I both are going to die. We all will. But do you know 
that you can live in spite of that and that you can live without the fear of dying. We don't know much about the other side of death, and we shouldn't pretend that we know too much about it. At best, we look in a mirror dimly now, but then we will see face to face. Now, we know only in part, but then we will know fully even as we now are fully known. We know that the emptiness of the tomb has been eclipsed by the Holy One. Christ has entered death itself, transformed it, and promises never to abandon us, ever. Dr. Loder believed that the reason that the minute these two travelers on the road to Emmaus recognized Jesus, Christ vanished from their sight, He believed that the reason for that is because Jesus was no longer a construct in their worldview. They had become part of a much larger worldview and were now a construct in the worldview of Jesus Christ our Lord. The disaster of the cross had purpose. And though the disciples had a hard time perceiving it, Christ was present with them even when they could not see it and until they did. And Christ is present with you and me though we may not be able to perceive it until we do. Faith in Christ is a road of discovery in which Christ reveals himself and it allows us the opportunity to extend the invitation whereupon The one we invite becomes the host who opens our eyes to a much larger reality and our hearts begin to burn within us with joy. Become part of a much larger story than your own. Don't merely seek to construct Christ in your worldview, but become a construct in his worldview Become part of the community of faith that witnesses together to this reality where two or three are gathered, our Lord has said. He is there in their midst and he was on the road to Emmaus. Let the living Christ into your life. Invite him to stay. And you will know this joy. You will know this buoyancy in the midst of life's challenges. You will find your way on the road to redemption. And you too will learn that you're going to live on this side and on the other. Thanks be to God. Amen.